You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. Good morning. How you guys feeling? Can you hear me out there? We're on? We're live? All right. Situated here, get my, uh, my clock here. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and we only have three hours, so uh, got to get moving. No, I'm kidding. We have two and a half. We'll try to keep it short. Um, so grab your copy of the scriptures, your Torah, your iPhone, um, however you like to read the Bible. Open that up if you have it. I'd love for you to do that. We're also going to have it on the screen as well, but love for you to actu- have an actual copy of the scriptures in front of you as we go through this. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 11. Give you a few minutes to find that. All right, if you're here last week, um, kind of just to recap, uh, Josh was teaching, and um, we've been going through the plague. So in the book of Exodus, Moses is confronting Pharaoh and um, telling him, you know, God says he wants you to let the Israelites go, let my people go into the wilderness so that they might worship me. Um, And Josh kind of went through all of the nine plagues and how each one of those plagues um, that God was actually confronting different gods um, of Egypt and kind of dethroning them, which is amazing. And so we kind of get to the end of that ninth plague, and this is what Pharaoh says at the, at the end of uh, chapter 10. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on that day you see my face, you shall die. So we kind of ended with Pharaoh basically saying, Moses, get out of my face, okay? So now we're going into chapter 11, verse 1. Let's just read this as we begin. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, and afterward he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh, um, sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. So I love that. So so God's saying He's giving them favor in the sight of the people, and He's saying, "Turn to your neighbors and ask them for gold and jewelry and all these things." Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine that? Getting ready for this journey, and it's like going to your neighbor. I see an iPhone. Is that an XS there? Uh, Go ahead and hand that over. Case two and the charger, hand it over. All right, I'm going to need that for my journey. Is that an iPad? Um, so God's just giving them favor, giving them all these things. Now, they're going to need these things um, for their journey. That's the reason this is happening. It's going to be a long journey, thinking ahead here. And it says that Moses was very great in the sight of the people. So one question that I've always had looking at the Exodus, you may have, this might have crossed your mind. It's funny that it took a, this long to cross my mind, but the question of why didn't Pharaoh just kill Moses? You know, he's like the most powerful man in the world. Why does he keep letting Moses. We've made it through nine plagues now. At what point do you just say, kill that guy? Um, I think it's pretty evident that, that Pharaoh and the people saw there's actually a God here at work. Something is happening here. We may not want to do that to kill Moses because that might be bad for us. So Moses is actually becoming great. He has the respect of the people at this point. So continuing on. So, so Pharaoh tells Moses, get out of my face. The Lord says to Moses, maybe he whispered in his ear what we just read, and now it says in verse 4, Moses, uh, Moses says this to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord said. So now Moses is speaking as a prophet 
to Pharaoh. Here's what he says. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will there ever be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, um, and after that, I will get out. My eyes are going. Anybody getting old in here and your eyes start going? This is happening to me right now. And so I'm like, how close do I get this to my face? All right, there we go. And after that, I will, I will get out. And he went from Pharaoh in hot anger. I love that part. Moses went out in hot anger. He was pissed. Imagine that. He's angry. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go out of this land. So kind of what's happening so far is, um, you know, Moses has been threatening. He's saying, you know, God's going to, you need to let my people out. Here's all these plagues that are happening to you. But at the end of the day, what's going on is Moses, Pharaoh still has charge over the people. He still has not let them go. In a sense, God hasn't won yet. Um, this is the place that they're in. And now God is saying, this is going to be the final blow. This is the 10th plague. After this, Pharaoh is going um, to let you go. So here's a, here's a couple things to observe in this 10th plague. <clears throat> they're a little bit different. In the first nine plagues, Moses and Aaron, or as I like to call him, Aaron, um, were basically kind of agents of God. They had the staff in their hand, right? So God is saying, I'm going to send frogs, I'm going to send gnats, I'm going to turn the Nile into blood. So Moses raises his staff, or he touches the Nile with, with his staff, and it happens. Something different is happening now. God is saying, look at this in verse, in verse 4, about midnight, I will go into the midst of Egypt, in the land of Egypt. He's going to do this himself. God's going to do the job himself, and he's going to finish the job. That's the difference. I love that because God is saying, I'm personally going to come down. I'm going to visit the Egyptians, and I'm going to enact um, this judgment upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh. And this is kind of the place that all of us are going to come to at some point where we stand face to face with the living God in judgment. Um, another thing it says is it's going to happen at midnight. So this is going to happen during the middle of the night. This is a really dark story, isn't it? It's very dark. I mean, first of all, it's happening at night, spooky, not as light as it is that probably has many street lights and all these things. This is, this is the darkness. Um, and this judgment is harsh, isn't it? God is saying, I'm going to kill all of the firstborn. And it doesn't matter Pharaoh's son um, to the slave. To, it doesn't matter. There's, I'm not showing any distinction. I'm going to kill them. This is difficult, isn't it? God's going to be doing this. I think it's easy for us. We hear this story so many times just to kind of gloss over it, not really think about those things. Um, I remember, some of you might remember this. Maybe I'm kind of dating myself here, but... Um, Back in the old days of, you know, youth group, we sang this song called Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Anybody 
Remember that? It's like, okay, there's some hands. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, yeah, she's doing the motions of it, yeah. Louie, Louie, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. Yeah, sing it with me, come on. Now, I always remember singing that song, and it's kind of funny because there's a whole verse that's dedicated to how um, all of Pharaoh's army went through the Red Sea, and then God killed them all, and then they did the dead man's float. And we're like doing the motions, like, yeah, this is so fun. God's just slaughtering people, you know. I remember thinking, like, this is really dark. Like, you'd think you might choose a different tune, maybe like a minor key to that um, song. But I think it's easy for us just to kind of gloss over this. This is harsh. This is, God is coming down. To, I, I don't want to, there's, I could stand here and try to think of reasons why, you know, God, God can do this. Now, God can do whatever he wants. But I think I, I want to leave it just, I want to leave that feeling of us just to kind of wrestle with that. Because this world is dark and this world is messy. And God chooses to come down into this world and, and act and bring about salvation. And it's messy. He's dealing with a Pharaoh who thinks he's the king of the world, who has power, a Pharaoh who is killing people because he wants to, killing, you know, the firstborn of even the, the Israelites. And God comes down and he does what he needs to do. And he, he says, I'm building this up, hardening Pharaoh's heart. There's a, there's a balance between God hardening Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. Um, and I'm doing this so that I can show my wonders because this is going to bring glory to me. It's going to get people's attention and cause them to look and say, this is the true and living God. Um, but, I, but it's also going to ensure that Pharaoh releases you. I'm going to bring about complete salvation. Um, one of the things kind of building off of what Josh shared last week with the gods, uh, the, the God was just each God that um, Egypt worshipped, the living God, the creator Yahweh, maybe we'll call him, um, we don't really know how to pronounce his name or what it was, but the name that he gave to Moses, if you look in verse 4, um, you see, thus says the Lord. It's all in capital letters. You might not realize this. Whenever you see that in um, the Old Testament, in the English translations, that's speaking of Yahweh, the God, the name that God revealed to Moses. Um, the Jewish people actually won't even say the name in reverence, which is kind of cool. They'll use the word Adonai. Um, but this is, this is the Lord God. He is dethroning all of the other gods and saying, I am the only God, I am the true and living God. Um, there was a God that the Egyptians worshipped, the giver of life, this is the sun god, his name was Aten or Aten. And here's kind of a window, this, this, is, this is kind of an um, ancient drawing of him here, worshipping the sun god. If you look at the next slide, there's actually an ancient hymn called the Great Hymn of Aten. And this was written in the 14th century um, B.C., which is like kind of around this time-ish. It's kind of a little window into um, Egyptian worship. These were, this was real to them. I, that's kind of sen- the sense that I get as I read part of this. But one thing that's interesting here is God comes in the night. The sun god, the cool thing about the sun god is during the day, he's shining, right? So he rises in the west, but then sets in the east. Or is it the opposite way? I don't remember, but you guys know. You guys get what I'm saying here. I didn't do my research. Um, it rises on one end, sets on the other. Um, but when it sets, the sun god goes to the underworld and leaves Egypt unprotected and vulnerable. So this was kind of already the nighttime was a scary time for the Egyptian people. And we have a window into this from this hymn, and I'm going to read it here, a quote from it. Thou appearest beautifully on the horizon of heaven, thou living Aton, the beginning of life, when thou art risen on the eastern horizon, thou hast filled every land with thy beauty. 
Thou art gracious, great, glistening, and high over every land. When thou settest in the western horizon, it's the west, the land is in darkness, in the manner of death. They sleep in a room with heads wrapped up, nor sees one eye the other. And their goods, which are under their heads, might be stolen, but they would not perceive it. Every lion has come forth from his den. All creeping things, they sting. Darkness is a shroud, and the earth is in stillness, for he who made them rests in his horizon. So you can imagine kind of the fear of the people, and God is saying, I'm going to come during the night, and I'm going to enact this judgment. I'm going to kill all the firstborn of Egypt. So, this is kind of what's happening. The threat has been made. Moses has presented this before Pharaoh, before the people. You imagine the fear that they're feeling. So the Israelites are probably thinking, okay, this is going to be crazy. <laughs> this is happening, okay? What do we need to do to get ready? So God, God says in chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, what does he say to him? What might you think that he, that he would say? Well, what he actually says is, everybody get out your calendars. We're going to rewrite the Jewish calendar, that's the first thing we're going to do, and we're going to talk about a liturgical church service that we're all going to have. We're going to be doing every year after we leave the land, and then we're actually going to go through that church service tonight and practice. Now, if I, I don't know, if I was Moses and the people, I'd be thinking, okay, that sounds amazing, but <laughs> could we kind of just get through this first? <laughs> you know, have, have all this, this new killing of the, this, this horrible judgment happen first, cross, you know... Exodus, exit out of, out of Egypt, get into the desert, wherever we're going, and then we can sit down and talk about this church service. God says no, for some weird reason, he, he does this. So this is what this whole next chapter is about. Here's what it says, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year till all the congregation of Israel on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, it's important, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. I, I find that wording kind of funny. You may take your lamb from the sheep or the goats. It's like if your goats are giving birth to lambs, you might have another problem here to deal with. Um, it's kind of hard to see, apparently, in the Hebrew. So the word here actually doesn't necessarily mean lamb only. It can mean lamb, it can mean goat, it could even mean another type of animal. Um, but the point here is to take one of these, one without blemish, a lamb or a goat, a male a year old, you may take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, let's stop for a second. We're going to be moving really fast here because we've got a lot of ground to cover. But basically what's happened is he's saying... This, is, this, this month now, the month of Abib is what it is, is now going to be, this hasn't been before, but now this is going to be your January, basically, changing the calendar. This is the first month for your people. You're going to have a celebration on the 14th day of that month, as we're going to see later. It's going to last seven days. And this is what you're going to be doing on that celebration. So the first thing he says is you're going to take a lamb, you're going to kill it at twilight. And then more going on in verse 7. Then he shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and in the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So imagine just the doorposts of the house, most likely on the outside. They're going to rub, take some of that blood and smear it on the top and on the sides of the door. 
They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of, the, any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Because why would you eat lamb boiled, right? It's always better the other way. Nobody likes boiled meat. I, I don't know if that's why he did that, but he's very specific. Don't boil it. But roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, the Lord's Pasach. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. That's important because a lot of, as you saw last week, a lot of the gods um, are depicted in the, in the form of animals. God is going to kill the firstborn of all the, the cattle as well and all the animals. Um, and, all, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. And I will strike the land of Egypt. Okay, there's so much in here we could talk about. We just don't have time. But here's the main point. God is going to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians, all the firstborn of the beasts, the cattle of Egypt. But he's going to pass over his own people because he's making a distinction, as you, noted, as you noted, might have noticed before. He's making a distinction between his people. He's setting apart a people. Part of the reason for this is, you, you know, it's funny. It's like, why is he, in the midst of all of this, orchestrating this service that's going to happen later? He's talking about something. You're going to be doing this every year forever. What's amazing about that is, is God, in God's mind, it's like this is already done. You're already, you're already on your way out. It hasn't happened yet, right? They haven't been released. They haven't been set free. In God's mind, I've already done this. I'm looking farther ahead. God's point isn't just to release his people because they're in slavery, because they're being oppressed. I mean, that's a noble thing in and of itself, isn't it? God comes down with compassion, sees his people, he hears the cry, the cry of his people. He tells Moses, There's, because of their, their taskmasters, their harsh slavery that they're enduring, and he's going to set them free. That's the compassion. There's something there. But he's setting them free for a reason. He's setting them free to become his people. He's going to make for himself, we call it a Passover people, people of God who are going to represent him to the world. They're going to bear the image of God to the world. And this type of ceremony, this is going to be the heart of the Jewish people. Um, the Passover and the Exodus, even to this day, it is, right? You guys know about that, the Seder meal that happens. They still celebrate this. This is, this is their story. This is who they are. It's their identity. God is creating an identity for the people. And all of these things have a specific purpose and a specific reason. So here we see the two is the killing of the lamb. The lamb is going to take the, take the punishment. The lamb is going to die instead of the Israelites, instead of his people. There's going to be one lamb per household. The lamb acts as a substitute for the people. They're also sharing a meal together. They're enacting this together. Um, this is still done even today. And the blood is the important thing. So this is the beginning of the Jewish sacrificial system that God's going to be instituting, and we're going to get into that later in Exodus, and especially in Leviticus. God is setting up a way, because of sin, the people's sin. He says, there's a way. I'm a holy, perfect God, you, you are sinful and unclean. You cannot be in my presence, but I'm going to wake, make a way for that to happen. 
It's going to be a substitute. It's going to be a lamb. It's going to be a goat. It's going to be a bull. It's going to be something's going to die. But the blood is what is taking these services and is sprinkled over things, if you look at that. The life is in the blood, it says in the scripture. The power is in the blood. You guys remember that song, uh, There's Power in the Blood? I was thinking about that today. That would have been a good one to do. Tim, can you do that just spontaneously? No, I'm kidding. I would never do that to you because I know what it's like. He's not even here. He ran away. Um, there's power in the blood. It's the blood is life-giving. And so, this is on the doorposts of their houses. The angel of death comes and passes over them. This is huge. So we're going to jump down a little bit. Um, we can't cover everything. But in verse 21, so it talks a little bit about um, the unleavened bread, um, matzah bread, cooking the bread without leaven. Um, if you had matzah bread, matzah balls, so good, right? That's where that comes from. Um, this is also called the Passover, but also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So this is all part of it, but we can't cover it all. So we're going to jump down to 21. Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select the lambs according to your clans and kill them, kill the Passover lamb. And just imagine, like, we just think of this happens really quick. They went and grabbed the lamb, killed it, boom. There's, there's a lot of work involved in this. They're, they're having to, like, think about, man... We're killing this lamb. We're preparing it. They're, they're thinking a lot about what they're doing. This is great because I love that. Even with communion, sometimes communion happens so fast for us. We just take the, the bread, dip it, dip in the juice real quick, and thank you, God, for what you've done. But we need to do things like this, where, where we're, we're, we're enacting this, taking time, where it's getting into our, our hearts and our souls of what's happening here. That's what God's doing. Take a bunch of the hyssop, verse 22, Dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, spreading the blood. None of you shall go out from the door of this house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel of the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter uh, your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statue for you and your sons forever. Um, another thing that I love about this is that God is doing everything, if you notice. He's the one taking, he's the one doing the job and finishing the job. But the Israelites are doing something too. They're acting in faith, right? It takes some faith. Get that lamb and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice this. I'm going to follow what you told me to do. I'm going to spread the blood on the door. That takes some faith. I mean, if it was me personally, think about that. It's like, how do they... There's debates on, like, how did they spread the blood on the door? How much did they do? What did it look like? I don't know. I would have just taken a bucket and been like, okay, there's blood on my door, see? I don't want to, like, God to miss it. It's like, is there blood there? It's kind of a small little splotch. Um, spread that thing. This is like, this is how you're going to live. It says that the disorder is going to see that and pass over you. It takes faith. They have to do this. I'm sure there are a lot of questions of maybe, like, this sounds kind of so Why are we doing that? It doesn't matter. God, this is what God told me to do. I'm going to trust him. He's going to do this. He's proven himself to me thus far. And then it says this, um, verse 25. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, and shall keep the serv- uh, service, in 26, and when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? This is great because this is like the identity of who these people are. You're saying this is going to be the, your identity as a people. And your kids are going to ask you, you know, if you really understand something, you should be able to explain it to a child, right? Maybe an eight, eight-year-old. And thinking about that as well, and just as we're going to talk about some par- obvious parallels with communion and what we do, when your kids ask you, 
What do you tell them? He says, you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And then I love this. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. You can see the, the, the realness of what's happening. They're feeling the weight of this, right? And they're putting their full trust in God, in the Lord. People bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, and the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Um, this is the part of the series where we show a clip from the, the movie The Prince of Egypt, because you have to do that when you're going through Exodus, right? Yeah, thank you for laughing. It was, a, it was meant to be funny. Um, so I, I wanted to show this clip because, um, just really quick, because um, I think it just, it really kind of brings home it's easy to just look at this. We're just reading our Bibles, and, and we're not putting ourselves there. And I think this kind of helps kind of put ourselves um, what it must have been like on that night. Let's just take a moment, maybe dim the lights of the candle a little bit, and just watch this clip. I'm going to stop it there, actually. We're going to watch a little more, but there's just no time. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. That word cry, it's used in chapter 11, it's used here. It's the same word that is used 
Hebrew word, akah, when God in chapter 5, Moses was at the burning bush and God told Moses, I have heard the cry of my people. It's the same word that's used here. It's come full circle. God hears the cry of the anguish of his people and now there's a great cry coming from the Egyptians, coming from the oppressors. The tide has turned. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, uh, Pharaoh did. Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and said, Up, go from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Remember, after the ninth plague, he said, Go ahead and go, but leave your flocks and herds. Now he says, Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. This is complete, complete victory. And then he says this at the end, And bless me also. That just shows you how much full circle has come, where Pharaoh has experienced absolute and utter defeat. He's done. He's like, you have everything you want, and not only that, bless me also. It's almost like as if, you know, we, we don't get all the details of this, but it's almost as if Pharaoh's just saying, your God won, number one. He is the true God. And beyond that, I'm not just acknowledging the facts. Ask him to bless me as well. He's... he's, he's saying, Yahweh is God. Go. Have everything that you want. So God works with his own hand, personally visiting, complete victory for the people of Israel. And now they're on their way out. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. I mean, they're just like, let us help you. Here, take my iPhone. Go. What else do you need? Be gone. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have whatever they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. This is interesting because this is a military term. When you go into battle and you, and you conquer a people or a land, what do you do? You plunder it, right? You take, take, take whatever you want. So they're plundering the Egyptians without lifting a finger. Isn't that amazing? God has done all of the work. He has brought complete victory over the Egyptians. And now they're walking in and plundering them. This happens a lot in the Bible, actually, where God works on behalf of his people. I, I just think of Jehoshaphat. As he's going to battle, he's seeing the armies before him, the Assyrians, and he's just like, there's no way we can win this battle. So he gets bows before God, has the people bow before God and worship, and he says, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And it says that night God went through the camp and wiped out the Assyrian army. As the people of God are worshiping and trusting in him, he is acting on their behalf. We talked about it a little bit last Sunday as we, um, the prayer service, if you missed the prayer service, uh, come to the next one. You don't want to miss it. It was awesome. We were talking. We, I, I was thinking a lot about that as we were praying. It's like, you know, this is, this is how we do church. This is how we do this <laughs> on our knees, just crying out to God. God, would you work? You, do the things that we can't do. Um, the magicians replicated a lot, of the, a lot of the plague, a lot of the tricks, quote-unquote tricks that Moses did, a lot of the miracles. Um, the world can replicate a lot of things that we do. They can do community better than us a lot of times. They can care for the poor and the sick better than us a lot of times. But there was a point where all of a sudden the magicians couldn't replicate that anymore, and certainly not this one, the 10th. 
This is where God sets himself apart and says, I am the living God. There's no, no one compared to me. No one can replicate this. I love that. Um, and it says in verse 37, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, and about 600,000 men on foot, another kind of military term in that time, 600 men was a unit. There's a lot of military terminology besides women and children. So 600,000 besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So we're talking about at least like 2.5 million people. When you think about the Exodus, I used to think about it as just like, okay, like, I don't know, there's like hundreds of people, maybe thousands going out. 2.5 million people slaughtering lambs for their household, putting blood on the door, plundering the Egyptians, and, ex- and, and leaving in this mass exodus, even with their cattle, and a mixed multitude as well. And this is the people where God actually provided a way, and we, we're not going to go through it, but it says a little bit later in chapter 12 that the sojourner among you, um, foreigners, whoever, if they want to join, they can. They just have to be circumcised. That was the only condition. Um, and so you can imagine there was probably people who, who kind of saw what was happening and thought, this is the true and living God, and I want to be a part of this. Or maybe they had befriended some of the Israelites, and they were friends, and they chose to go with them. So this is, this is God. He's always like this. He's setting apart a people for himself, but he's also opening the door for others to enter, and that's the whole point, isn't it? God had made Israel a people that would bear his image to the world, so that the nations, you read the Psalms, I mean, it's all about the nations. We sang it this morning, that the nations might come in uh, and, and worship him as well and be saved. All right. We're going to move on from there. We can't cover the whole thing. I wish that we could. Um, Fast forward over a thousand years later, God sends his only son, Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is in Jerusalem. He's coming um, as the Passover. He's coming as the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Not sound familiar to anyone? Story that we all know to lay down his life on the cross. Um, There's so many parallels there. We can't get into all of them. Um, But he's going to die on the cross for the sins of his people, for the sins of this time, the whole world, the once-for-all lamb sacrifice. He will be raised from the dead. His blood will be what saves us, the life-giving blood of Jesus that covers us, our substitute pays our debts. We sang about We sang about that. We're going to sing about it some more. So thinking about Jesus coming, when do you think Jesus, thinking strategic, strategically about when should I come and accomplish this? If he was going to come on a festival, one of the Jewish festivals, a time where people would associate his death with what's, with what's happening. I think, honestly, a lot of us would probably say, oh, well, probably the Day of Atonement. Right? Am I right? Am I far off? Yom Kippur. I mean, doesn't that make sense? This is like the one, one day, as someone shared earlier, like Aaron comes into the um, Holy of Holies, the priest comes into the Holy of Holies, offers the sacrifice once for all, or once for all the people of, of Israel, for himself and all the people. So many things going on there in the theology of the atonement. I would think, ah, oh, that's probably when Jesus is going to come going to die, and we're all going to understand. Well, when does Jesus actually come? I think it's very interesting that he comes on Palm Sunday at the time of the Passover. 
Jesus chooses the Passover as the time when he comes to die for the sins of the world. What's unique about that is the Passover was a very tumultuous time. This was like revolution was in the air. Um, This was like the exodus was on people's minds. So the Israelites right now during this time are really in exile. I mean, they're, they're Israel but they're under the oppression, the power and the oppression of the Romans. They're, the Romans own them. They're letting them play house, do all these things, be Israel and play, play church, so to speak. But they're owned by the Romans, and they're under the oppression of the Romans. That's why you see these zealots and these messiahs that rise up and challenging Rome. It's bloody. There are battles. It's, it's just like there's this tension in the air. It's almost like not a safe place to be. Jesus comes right into the midst of this, riding on a donkey, which actually we mistakenly think that that's because that's a sign of humility that he was on a donkey. Because, I mean, I would think, yeah, why don't you use a nice noble steed, you know, a donkey? But actually, kings rode in on donkeys when they went into battle. So he's coming in as the king of Israel. He's riding in. I mean, this is like before the Romans, you're waltzing in saying, I'm the king, I'm the king of Israel. You're, Jesus is starting a fight, basically. There's a lot of parallels to the Exodus story that's happening here. Jesus comes in, he confronts immediately the temple establishment. Jerusalem's own temple and religious leaders and sacrificial system, all that had become corrupt. Jesus challenges that head on, just like Moses, challenging Pharaoh. He's challenging the oppressors. And he, has, he actually celebrates the Passover. Isn't that amazing? Like what we just studied, what the Jewish people have been doing. This is like the heart of their, uh, of their people and who they are. Um, he's, he has a Passover meal with his disciples. And we need to think about it that way as well. Passover is what was happening during this time. It wasn't like, you know, like we do where Jesus was disciples and they went up to a table and broke off a little piece of bread and dipped it in a cup. This was like they were having the Passover meal. They were eating the sacrificed lamb. They're all of these, all the things that we just studied, this is all going through their minds, all of these things. This is like the once a year celebration. We are the people of Israel. Um, God alone is our king. And so Jesus sits down with his disciples. I love this too because he doesn't come in and just sit them down and go, okay, let me give you, like walk you through the theology of what I'm about to do. I'm going to be the vicarious, substitutionary atonement, propitiatory atonement for your sins. He doesn't do that. Um, we get to read a lot about that after as the Christians are beginning to work out um, what it meant. But what Jesus did was he sat down and had a meal with his disciples. He sat down with them and ate the Passover meal. He said, this, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. This, bl- this, this juice, this wine is my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so... We're enjoying this Passover meal, and Jesus is basically taking the Passover and he's reinterpreting it. The, the Jewish people are looking to the past at what happened. Jesus is now looking to the future and saying, this is what this is going to be for you. And I won't drink again of this until I drink it again um, in the kingdom of my Father. You can read about some of those things, but in the kingdom, I'll drink it again. Jesus is bringing a kingdom so when Jesus comes, I want us to think about this a little bit differently this morning, um, just as we, as we prepare and we're getting ready to celebrate communion, the new Passover, we could call it this morning, on that imagery. Um, it's easy for us, I think, just to say, 
I do this too as we come up really quick and we say, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins so I can go to heaven when I die. And it's kind of like, yes, that's true, and there's a lot there. But we're also entering into a story. This is a meal. This is reminding us um, of what Jesus did, of the story that we are entering in, that Jesus began on the cross. When Jesus died on that cross, he was, he was doing two things. He was destroying the gods, the idols, um, the gods of um, Rome, one of them, the, the gods of, um, you know, the kings of this earth that think that they rule. He was destroying the gods and the, the idols of death. That's a big one. Um, he was destroying that once and for all when he rose from the dead. He was destroying sin, the power of sin. He was disarming it, just like God was doing um, in the Exodus story and the Passover. But he was also, so he was becoming king. He's establishing himself as the king. At the end of that, he rises from the dead, I alone am the king. He's also setting us free. He's bringing us into what some theologians have called a new exodus in him. He's setting us free from the power of sin so that we can live a new life in forgiveness, right? He's setting us free from death so that we can have life, not just um, in heaven after we die, but right now. He's also setting us free from so many idols of oppression. I mean, the list goes on and on. Selfishness, um, greed, um, consumerism, all of these things. Like, we don't have to be ruled by those things anymore because Jesus destroyed them on the cross and we can live in freedom as his people. So, as we come to the communion tables this morning, I just I want us to kind of reflect on that and maybe think about it a little bit differently than, than you have or that you normally do. What does it look like for me to say, as I'm standing here and I'm taking this bread and I'm drinking this juice or this wine, um, what does it look like for me to say, God, I want to enter into this story. I want to live inside the narrative that is still happening I want to be an image bearer of God. That's really what our job is, right? He set us apart as a Passover people to be image bearers of God. That's our vocation. It's kind of cool, isn't it? How many people have a job in here? Okay. All right. Yeah. We have a job. It's, it's, a, it's something maybe that we're wired to do, that we love to do. Maybe we don't love it as much. Um, we're getting a paycheck, some more than others. But if, you're, if you believe all this stuff and you're a follower of Jesus, your vocation is to be an image bearer of God. My sins have been forgiven. I've been set free to live for God, to bear his image in the earth. So, so I love how one um, pastor I heard put it, we're all ministers of God and we're all paid ministers, every single one of us. It's just that our paychecks are coming from different places, right? We're getting a paycheck so we can live, so that we can fulfill our vocation, which is to be an image bearer of God. So when you get up tomorrow morning, Think about that. What does it look like for me to bear the image of God to my neighbor, for me um, to love them? The way that we do that, this is the new way to live, is through love, through humility, through self-sacrifice. We're here to, C.S. Lewis put it, be little Jesuses in the world. That's what our job is. Set the captives free, to show the love of God, to proclaim this message of the love of God. They can be set free as well. What does it look like to do that. As we come to this table, let's think about, let's think not as much about, God, thank you for 
this one time act that you did and forgiving my sins, but God, thank you for inviting me into this story, into this family. Look around at your brothers, sisters around you, the Passover people of God. God, I, I want to I thank you, and I want to I be empowered to know you and to follow you and to learn what that means to live in the story. And, and finally, I'll end with this. What does it mean to live in that story? Well, it means to figure that out, you have to look at the life of Jesus, study the life. You have to study the life of Jesus. You have to learn from his teachings and put his teachings into practice. It's called being a disciple. A word that I love to use, I've heard someone use as apprentice, to be an apprentice of Jesus, to learn to be like him, to live like him. And, you know, that doesn't come just from saying, boom, thanks for dying for my sins, boom, thank you, moving on. It's, it's so much more than that. We need to enter into a life where, Jesus, you are my, my master, you're my teacher. Teach me to live like you. Teach me to be your hands and feet in the world. Teach me to bear your image to those around me who need you so desperately. And there's room at the table for everyone. God has always been doing that. But through Jesus, the heart of the gospel, something we don't think about a lot as well. I'll, I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'll throw it in real quick. This one's free. The heart of the gospel is Gentile inclusion. You know what a Gentile is? If you, any Jews in here this morning? Anyone that's Jewish? Okay. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Congratulations. How many Gentiles in here this morning? I'm a Gentile. All right. So, God set apart his people, the, the Jewish people, to be his image bearers to the world, to the nations, so that the nations might come in and know him. That's a theme throughout the whole Bible. And more in the New Testament and in the writings of Paul than we give credit for. Like when we read the writings of Paul and the letters a lot of times, I promise I'm wrapping this up, we see all this Gentile stuff. We're just like, okay, the weird stuff about the Gentiles, whatever. I guess he was Jewish. I don't get it. Okay, yeah, yeah, he died for my sins. You know, those kind of things. That's like a huge part. Paul talks about it all the time, is that God has made a way for all people to know him. In Colossians or at Ephesians, he talks about a mystery this mystery of Christ, this mystery, this mystery of God, God's mystery. What is it? What is the mystery? You know what it is? It's Gentile inclusion. <laughs> the mystery of God is that the Gentiles have been accepted into God's family. This is amazing, you guys. This is actually, we need to think, think about this probably more than we do because this goes with our vocation. God's heart, has to, he's told us through the gospel that he wants everyone to know him. He wants all people to know him. That was the point from the very beginning. So we got a lot of work to do, you guys. Are you up for the challenge? When we wake up tomorrow morning, this, this is what we're doing. It starts with the cross and with Jesus, what he's accomplished for us. We're going to be celebrating. But we're also entering into a story. God didn't just set his people free um, because he didn't want them to have to endure that harsh slavery anymore. He wanted them to be free. He set them free to be the Passover people and the image bearers of God in the world. And that's what he's done through Jesus for us. Let's pray. Um, God, there's a lot here um, that we've talked about this morning, and um, we just want to take some time just to meditate on the grandness of the story that you invited us into, Lord. Um, it's so easy to forget. It's easy for me to forget. God, I have the um, privilege this week of meditating on this story and thinking a lot about it, and it's, it reminds me and 
just refreshes my soul that I'm a part of something huge, God, that you're doing. And, um, and there's a giant world out there of people that need to know you, individuals that desperately need you, um, friends, even on family members, God, even in my case, that need you, that need to know you. There's also entire nations, people groups who don't know you, that need you. The task is, is unimaginably huge. Um, but Lord, we believe that you are the true and living God and that there's nothing that you can't do. You set two to three million people free from the most powerful nation, the most powerful ruler in the world. And God, somehow through the blood of your own Son incarnate among us, you brought, you raised him from the dead and you brought salvation to anyone who will come in faith to the table and trust in you. And so, Lord, just remind us of that. Show us each one of us are, are unique, God. We're living together, but we also have unique stories and unique lives. And just show us what, what that looks like in our life today and tomorrow and this week and even in the years to come. God, continue to lead us. And most of all, um, Jesus, I pray that you would renew our desire to know you and to follow you, um, to be your disciple. And we're so grateful for that privilege. So we come to you now, we come to the table um, with full of gratefulness, Lord, in our hearts and just eager to learn to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.